you were being seated before I told you to, oh, I'll tell you, these rich, you're in a rut, I'll tell you. Good to see you tonight. Let's turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 5 tonight. Sunday nights we go through the Bible uh, from Genesis to Revelation, if you're new with us. And we're in Jeremiah chapter 4 tonight. If you're with us tonight without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just flag them. Now get your Bible and uh, you'll be fairly lost without one on the Sunday evening services. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord uh, to you. Jeremiah is prophesying. prophesying. We've been away now uh, a month from with the Christmas season and holiday season and so forth, uh, away from Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Old Testament prophet, prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah and calling on them to repent from uh, their sin and wickedness and idolatry. These are all the terms that God was using to confront them with who they were. When we talk about the uh, children of Judah, we're not talking about pagans. We're not talking about Canaanites or Perizzites or the Hittites. We're talking about people who claimed to know and to love God. And, uh, and he is forced to come to them and confront them concern and use words uh, horrifyingly. But again, it's the same flesh that we have as well, our same capacity for, uh, again, self-deception and, and to call them to repent of their idolatry and their wickedness and, and uh, of their sin. And warning them that if they did not do so, then he would bring judgment on them in the form of an invasion uh, by the world-ruling empire at that time, uh, the Babylonian uh, empire. And so the theme of the passage here is judgment is coming upon them, repentance is needed. But in verse 1, and this was a verse that we looked at uh, previously, uh, you say, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. So the whole theme of what we're in right now in chapters 4 and 5 is God's call upon them to return to him from that condition. Uh, I always think about, you know, sometimes uh, the word repentance, which is what uh, repentance means to have a change of mind uh, that results in a change of direction. It is to turn. And when we're walking away from God, we need to uh, return to Him, and that's what He's calling. But so often you see, you know, uh, repentance uses some kind of a terrible thing or some, you know, awful thing of God is calling people to repent. The marvel, really, in Scripture is that God is patient with us enough in our sin to call us to repentance, to warn us related to it, and then give us room to repent. And so repentance is a wonderful message uh, when the shoe fits, and it was a message of grace to them. He could have just hammered them right out of the gate, but he didn't. He warned them for a long time through the prophecy of uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied for 40 to 45 years. Verse 5. He describes now Babylon, who is going to come uh, prophesying of the coming invasion because they will not repent of their sin, declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together out 
throughout Judah and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. And so here you can picture yourself in the southern kingdom of Judah. The Babylonian uh, army is beginning to invade uh, Judah from the north. Everybody realizes that they're living in villages or homes that are out in the middle of agricultural land and so forth, uh, that they have no means of protecting them uh, themselves at all. So the word gets out, gather yourself, let's go to the fortified cities like uh, Jerusalem in order to uh, try and survive uh, this judgment, this invasion, set up the standard towards Zion, Uh, in other words, head towards Zion, Jerusalem, take refuge, do not delay, uh, for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. And so this horrible Uh, this disaster that would come upon the land and great destruction as a result. Uh, Then Babylon is likened to a lion that has come up from its thicket. Any of you have watched like Animal Kingdom and these kind of shows? We used to watch it. Was it Perkins? What was his name? Is his last name Perkins, the guy that was kind of an elderly gentleman wrestling boa constrictors and... uh, Am I right in that? Somebody please an authority on 1960s television. Marlon Perkins, is that what it was? All right, very good. All right. I haven't had this kind of a response uh, to my sermons in uh, 30 years. And uh, just mention Animal Kingdom in the course of any teaching that you do, and you'll have the audience in the palm uh, of your hand. And so, uh, but if you watched any of those shows, you know that when a lion gets up out of his thicket, lions can kind of be uh, a little bit lazy, actually. And the lionesses do a lot of the hunting and so forth. Uh, but when they get, rise up from their thicket and they head out to hunt, they will not return until they have uh, their prey. And God is saying that Babylon is going to come out against Judah and uh, that army, when she comes, will not return until they have made a prey uh, of Judah. And the destroyer of nations is on his way. It's quite a way to describe an army, the destroyer of nations. And Babylon, again, at this time was a world-ruling empire and uh, the dominant influence in the world, and uh, it had laid waste to uh, the known world in the Middle East and, and uh, destroyed it and, and taken it under its dominion. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. You notice the strength of the words, desolate, laid waste, without inhabitant. And so um, I kind of like it. Here we are, we're reading it. We're in a warm room in a nice building. And, and uh, so uh, desolate, laid waste, without inhabitant, those are kind of conceptual terms to me at the moment. But imagine the city of Modesto and uh, the prospect of it, the reality that it could, uh, could occur, that a, a city like uh, Modesto could be uh, the land city made desolate, uh, laid waste without inhabitant, and picture the city of Modesto, north, south, east, and west in that uh, condition. And it can happen, and it was going to happen to the entirety of Judah. I mean, you, we would walk through, it'd be like some kind of a science fiction movie. You'd look and say, what we were just weeks before, and this is what has become uh, of the city, and this was the degree of uh, desolation that was going to come upon the entire southern kingdom of Judah. For this 
uh, clothe yourself with sackcloth, uh, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And so here we see the, uh, the mention of the fierce anger of the Lord, and I think that that's almost a lost truth today, and uh, nobody, <laughs> I always think about, you, you remember, uh, here we go again, you remember the Pillsbury Doughboy? All right, okay, some of you do. And uh, the goofy little thing, you poke him in the stomach and he giggles and so forth. I think that's our culture's kind of dominant concept of God, is that if he's there, he's kind of harmless, and if he ever got troubled, you poke him in the tummy, and then he kind of giggles and goes on about his business. The idea that God would actually judge this world uh, or judge a nation is something that is lost upon us to our peril. The Lord can be pushed to a place where the fierce anger of the Lord uh, now is going to be expressed against, uh, against the sin and, uh, and all that is, uh, you know, is being performed uh, before, his, uh, before his eyes. It's a possibility God can be driven there. Now, Judah's uh, spiritual, uh, political and spiritual leaders, here's the response that they have to all of this when it occurs. And it shall come pat to pass in that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king, here's the secular ruler, so to speak, uh, his heart will perish at the news of this invasion. The heart and the heart of the princes will do so as well. The priests will be astonished at all of this, despite all of the prophecies of Jeremiah and the prophets shall uh, wonder. And so uh, the, the leaders of the land will be brought into complete uh, despair over this development, even though God had warned them in his word and by uh, prophetic uh, prophets that he had sent and so forth, and yet it still takes them unaware. It's very, very important for each of us in this room that we have our own personal relationship with the Lord in which we listen to him and we obey him and we do what he tells us to do no matter uh, what the appointed leaders of anything do or don't do. They can be as ignorant as anyone else in life, as blind as anyone else in life, and there are times where uh, the leadership can be completely blind and ignorant, and it is the people will, who will end up having to rescue things. And so here are these leaders. It takes all of them uh, by surprise because they thought the power of the nation of Judah, the true security of the nation of Judah, was its power and it was its wealth as opposed to their obedience to God. And they're going to, uh, just about to learn the folly of that um, in a very, very dramatic way. The only place of security in this world, there is no security in any amount of money. Sure, it's nice to have more than less, right? But it can be gone in an instant. Power can be gone in an instant. The only confidence that we have of security in this life is to be obeying God, walking in obedience to his word and his call upon our lives. They were far from that. They should have felt very insecure, but they uh, produced kind of different um, things that they uh, uh, pinned their hopes upon uh, as, as a means of, 
uh, of security, and they were completely wrong. And then I said, and here's Jeremiah as he's uh, you know, prophesying these things, but as he's prophesying them, he's hearing them from God as well, and he's confused by all of this. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you are, uh, have greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. So it appears here that Jeremiah is confused at God's allowing the false prophets in Judah uh, to continue to speak their lies to the nation, that judgment wasn't going to come, that we're going to be okay despite all of our uh, disobedience and idolatry. And so he's confused. Why do you let these prophets continue to speak? And, uh, and uh, uh, make these false prophecies that people are believing. And, uh, and it was confusing for Jeremiah. That what a person speaks is a reflection on them. Uh, what we believe is a reflection upon us. And we always tend to believe what we want to believe. And so God never said that any of us, even as his children, would live in a world where everyone that says, thus saith the Lord, actually speaks for God. Mormonism is bogus. Jehovah Witness religion is bogus. We could go right down the line. We've got a lot of people who claim to speak for God, and, and they uh, uh, not only don't speak for him, they speak against him and against Christ and the salvation that is found uh, in him. And so there has to be that realization in our lives. Yes, he allowed the false prophets to occur, but any person could have gone to the Word of God, tested their prophecies by the Word of God, discovered them to be false, and he also sent men like Jeremiah to speak the truth to the people. And so we can't blame uh, all of these false things that go on all around us and say, well, uh, you know, that somehow God's to blame because he allows that to go on. God has warned us that this would always be the case to the end uh, of the age, but he also has given us the truth of his word and he has always sends true prophets as well, and, uh, and uh, we have a responsibility uh, to sift through all of that and to test all things, as Paul said, and hold fast to that uh, which is good. And then now in verse 11, uh, he likens Babylon to a dry wind and a storm that would kind of overwhelm uh, Judah, and uh, a Sirocco wind that would come out of the desert, a very hot, searing kind of wind. At that time it shall be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness. And the Sirocco wind would come out of uh, the desert. Maybe you've seen you know, some kind of a movie or documentary uh, as well where um, you might see the setting is in the Middle East and here is somebody in a car or on horseback and they're trying to uh, uh, outrun this sandstorm that is overtaking them and, uh, and they're hoping to get to some kind of shelter before it hits them. And the danger of that is not just uh, the wind that would be blowing, the force of the wind, but that that kind of sandstorm would come in and basically suffocate you. And so uh, this invasion is going to be a suffocating invasion by the Babylonians uh, coming out uh, in this way toward the daughter of my people. It won't be a gentle wind that kind of
kind of comes in the summer and we're thankful for it, you know, to move the air a little bit uh, or to cleanse uh, the air. It'll be a wind too strong for these will come uh, for me, and now I will also speak judgment against them. Behold, he shall come up like clouds, speaking of Babylon, and his chariots like a whirlwind. I don't like chariots coming against me, much less like a whirlwind, and his horses are swifter than eagles. Uh, I wouldn't want to be run down uh, in battle by a horse, and I certainly wouldn't want to be one, uh, you know, that is swifter than an eagle. In other words, Judah is going to be completely vulnerable to the strength of this army. You ever watch sometimes these movies? I guess I just got movies. Okay, movies on my mind. But... Um, where there's kind of a, you know, they've got the terrorists or whatever it is, and they find this terrorist in a pickup truck heading across, you know, some desert of the Middle East, and then uh, uh, some, you know, jet comes out of, you know, behind some rock formation and whatever, and there you are. It's just you and a Toyota, uh, you know, Tundra pickup and a jet, uh, a betting man uh, would bet on that jet, you know. I mean, it, it, you're, you're completely uh, vulnerable. Woe to us, for we are uh, plundered. And so, so great would be the strength of this, uh, this invasion. And then uh, here's another call to uh, Judah to uh, return, uh, but they won't listen. And the first word is a very good one in verse 14, oh, Jerusalem, And that still speaks to the heart of God. He's trying to reach them. He loves them. He cares about them. He wants to turn this judgment away from them if they would uh, only turn. And so his heart is broken for Jerusalem, but uh, uh, they've put him in a place where he must judge. Oh, Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness. Uh, that, and that's a reason word, that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan up in the north and proclaims affliction from Mount Ephraim. Judah, I mean, uh, Babylon would invade from the north, and these would be the first places that would be, uh, you know, come under the uh, you know, the attack of the invading Babylonians, make mention to the nations. Yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and they raise their voice against the cities of Judah, speaking of how Babylon would send scouts or uh, messengers out ahead of the armies into the land. And here you see them now, uh, the scouts in the land, the armies right behind them, like keepers of a field, they are against her all around because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. Your ways and your doings, and he, he's confronting them with their response, uh, responsibility for all of this. God uh, chastens is, is a last resort within our lives. He, he, when he's forced to do it in our lives, your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness because it is better because it uh, bitter uh, uh, because it reaches uh, to your heart. Now, uh, is Jeremiah again as he's declaring this message to Judah? Um, it, again, it's all impacting uh, him. He doesn't doubt the righteousness of God and what God is. Uh, prophesying to the nation. He lives in the nation. He knows that it's worthy uh, of the judgment. Uh, but 
uh, here is one of the challenges, isn't it, where God is speaking to a nation and the only person or people who are taking God's warning seriously are the people who don't need to take it seriously. They're already walking with the Lord. And then it's the other group that should be listening uh, that aren't heartbroken at all that should be listening. And so here is the strength of this message that God is giving. Jeremiah has a tender heart toward God and toward the people and toward Judah. And so uh, it begins to impact him strongly. And he cries out, Oh, my soul, my soul. I don't know the last time uh, that you did that related to our own nation and looking at it heading headlong without a, a revival and repentance toward judgment. Oh, my soul, my soul, he said, I am pained in my very heart. And that word pain means to writhe in pain and uh, to twist oneself with pain. His whole heart is twisted with intense pain. My heart makes a noise in me uh, as he's uh, considering all of this that's going to come upon the land. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, uh, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. And so he's taking all of it seriously. It would be like if there was a prophecy made for the desolation of California or the city of Modesto and that it was fast approaching and you would go to downtown Modesto or the mall and walk through it and you'd see it hustling and bustling and all of the activity, but you know it's going to be a desolation in a number of weeks. It would hurt your heart to look at it and to know these people who are walking around so oblivious to the judgment that is coming, and it's a self-willed blindness that they've put themselves into. It's not because God hasn't warned them and to look at it and go, if they, if they would only take seriously what is coming and how it is that, you know, that would break uh, break our hearts, and it certainly broke Jeremiah's heart. The sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war, he can already hear it. He can already see the armies coming in. God's saying it is, is as sure as, as happening. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is plundered, and he sees it in his, uh, in his mind's eye, the whole land now plundered, the fulfillment of the prophecy that he's delivering. And then he sees all of this come right into his own tent, into his own home. Suddenly, my tents are plundered and my curtains uh, in uh, a moment. And so uh, here the nation is ex ignoring the messages and he knows they're all going to come to pass and the tremendous emotional uh, impact upon him of being able to see a land uh, completely destroyed uh, too much uh, for him. It was said concerning uh, D.L. Moody, a famous uh, evangelist of the United States in the 1800s, uh, and I, it always reminds me of Jeremiah, and it was uh, uh, D.L. Moody wrote, no one should ever preach on the topic of hell without a tear in his eye. And it's the same thing in prophesying uh, judgment. I think it's one of the great things that happens as we grow older in the Lord. We come to a certain level of maturity, and it's like, wipe them out! you put up with this. I mean, you could bring this to a stop in a moment in Jesus' name. 
call down fire from heaven. You know, they didn't open up an inn for us. Jesus said, where'd you learn that? You didn't learn it from me. You don't know what spirit you are. I didn't come into the world to destroy the world, but to save the world. And something very dramatic happens in our lives. And the earlier that it happens, the better. To be able to look and to realize that as surely as all of the prophecies occurred that Jeremiah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah, and as surely as they ultimately went into captivity in Babylon, so too every prophecy that God has given as a judgment, uh, in terms of judgment of the world at the end of the age is going to occur. And then to look around and with a compassion toward people. We can't control them turning. We can't make them repent. We can't make them take God seriously. But we can communicate to them with that kind of heart. And it goes a lot further, the, the heart of a Jeremiah, uh, than the heart of, uh, you know, uh, James and John uh, in their flesh, something that, you know, I uh, can be familiar with as well. And so verse 21, he says, how long will I see the standard? He, Lord, how long? Uh, and hear the sound of the trumpet. And the Lord's answer is, for my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children, and they have no no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Wow. What an end to that verse it is, isn't it? A nation that is wise to do evil, but has no knowledge of how to do good. A nation that is, trains its citizens in evil, but not in Good makes them wise to do evil, but doesn't teach them good morally and spiritually. And unfortunately, that is the nation that we are in right now, unless there's a turnaround. So we've got a new president coming in. There's a lot of hope uh, associated. Well, okay, a lot of despair on the part of some people, and then other people are uh, very hopeful for uh, a change. And so economically and what decisions are going to be made and turning this around and then turning this around and then bringing this around and all of that. But as a Christian, I'm, I'm all for an economic turnaround. I'm all for uh, uh, stopping getting beaten up as Christians in this country. I'm just glad that for the next four years, I'm confident that I don't have to wake up as a Christian uh, every day and wonder what Christian bakery's been put out of business for simply being a Christian, or what Christian photographer's been run out of business simply because they hold to a biblical view. It's just nice to get a break from that. It has been a war on Christianity for eight years, and that's just the way that it is no matter who we are and what we believe uh, politically or economically. So I want to see all these great things happen as, as well within our nation. But the thing you must watch is if there is not a change in terms of spirituality and morality, um, we continue to drive headlong the way that we are and the exploration of wickedness 
and the absolute abandonment of spirituality and the abandonment of morality, biblical morality, which is the only true morality that there is, then uh, all we're doing is, is heading toward a judgment. We'll just have uh, a, a few more gallons of gas in, in our cars uh, and, and, uh, and so forth uh, when all of it happens. And so the importance of it. I'm, I love movies. I love movies. Uh, before I was a Christian, I'm not proud to say it, but I watched not every movie that came out because I, I did have a conscience and I didn't want to mess myself up too bad. So it was just pure, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and, you know, killing 8,000 people in a 90 minutes. And I didn't have a particular interest in that. But as a vehicle for a message, a vehicle to bring music, acting, a storyline, uh, have somebody in a room for two hours and to be able to have the time to lay something virtuous out in front of a person, plant something wonderful within their hearts. I don't know that there's anything more powerful uh, than that. And, uh, you know, for instance, even Rex Reed, who's like a, a Hollywood uh, critic related to movies, he just uh, deemed the last year of Hollywood movies as just a stinker. It was just a lousy year. And I look and everyone, I try to look and see, is there a movie I can go and see, something that will uh, do something virtuous in me and develop uh, characters and have a good moral and, and, and so forth and all. And I'll tell you, where did you get to go this year? But it's on, on the television too and so forth. We're educating people to the nth degree in evil and in wickedness and it'd be one thing if we did that and we were counterbalancing it with teaching about virtue and spirituality or morality, but the one is like 98% on the side of the scale and the other is 2%. And there's no future for a nation uh, like that. You look as you look at the news and the different things as you see these things that people do in the news. I mean, I go online and I see the headlines and it's the, they did what? How does a human being do that to another human being, to an animal, to anyone, to anything? Where do you get that in your mind? Where does that come from? And I know where it comes from. We're being educated in evil, but not in virtue and spirituality and in morality. And it's not a good sign for a nation. Well, we can't speak for Hollywood. And we can't speak for our nation, and we can't speak for California. We can only speak for ourselves. But to recognize it for our own individual lives, the danger of my life becoming one in which I'm becoming wiser and wiser in wickedness uh, rather than becoming uh, wiser in gaining in knowledge uh, of how to do uh, Good, and we become wise. I mean, I, I watch uh, sports. I like sports, and uh, so here I am. I'm watching a sports game or whatever, and then comes on the commercial for this uh, American horror thing or whatever it is. And it's like you you can't you can't sit down. Not only as a Christian, but you can't sit down as a human being and watch hours of that. And then get up and put the remote down and go pour yourself a bowl of cereal 
and seriously think, I'm a normal, well-adjusted human being. You just can't do that. But here, it's the proverbial frog being uh, boiled ever so slowly. So we become wise in whatever we give ourselves to investigate and to study. And in Judah, they were giving their best to the study of idolatry and sin. Yeah, people went to temple and all of that, but they were just making an appearance in doing so. And so what they studied uh, away from the temple, uh, that's what they gave their lives to. And uh, that's what... Um, they, then they became experts in uh, wise to do evil but with no knowledge to do good. What's the best way to become wise to do good and have no knowledge of evil? The Bible. The Bible to immerse ourselves in the sanctifying, washing influence of the Word of God. It's a very important uh, verse, that latter part of verse 22, because it's timeless, not just for Judah, but for us as well. And then God declares, Jeremiah prophesies, uh, and, and sees the end of uh, the Lord's kind of uh, fierce anger. And he, and he declares, I beheld the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. Where's that come from? Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the world, earth was without form and void. But what happened? It began without form and void, and then it became something magnificent under the weight of what? And the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, let there be light. And the Lord said, and then it became the magnificent creation that it is. But when a world and when a nation or an individual uh, no longer heeds, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, then the beauty of what he has created, the beautiful potential of the world under his influence, it, can, it will go back to without form and without uh, without form, void and without form. It will go back to a jungle. It'll go back to chaos. It'll be, uh, go back to, you know, might makes right and survival uh, of the fittest. And so the Word of God takes us in a certain direction is kind of the imagery of what Judah is, is using, uh, uh, Jeremiah is using here. And then with the recognition that to disobey God's Word is going to take the world and civilization in the exact opposite direction. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light, and I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth, and I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruit, uh, fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the uh, presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make 
a full end. And so he warns he's going to judge Judah. They will be wiped out, but he won't bring them to an end as, uh, as a people. He's uh, uh, going to protect them uh, as a people. After all, the Messiah has to come into the world through their bloodline. For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken. I have uh, purposed and will not relent, uh, nor will I turn back from it. The whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen, and they shall go into thickets and climb on the rocks, and every city shall be forsaken. Not a man shall uh, dwell in it. And so this uh, tremendous uh, uh, run, overrunning of the land by Babylon. And then God uh, 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 continues to declare, and when you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, a little bit of makeup here, and in vain you will make yourself fair, your lovers will destroy you, they will seek your life. And so God is warning them that they're going to regret ultimately. Uh, their decision uh, to uh, fail to take his call to repentance uh, seriously, and, uh, and, and, uh, and so he likens them here in verse 30 to being harlots and uh, making them, uh, sprucing themselves up with all of their pageantry and all of their gold and all of their uh, ornateness and all of this in an attempt to try and seduce the Babylonians when they came uh, into the land. And uh, in essence, God is telling them that these who you want to make your lovers are going to become uh, your uh, murderers. And so her greatest attempts to seduce Babylon, to turn away from destroying her, God says it's all going to fail. And, uh, and, and, and so, uh, so it does. And for I have heard a voice uh, as of a woman in labor, uh, the anguish of her who brings forth her first, first child. So he said the pain that is going to come is going to be like the pain of delivering a child, and not just any child, but the first child, which is typically the most uh, uh, painful of the births, uh, at least so I hear. Uh, the voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself, she spreads her hands saying, woe is me now, for my soul is weary because of murderers. And so God says, you're going to regret one day that you didn't listen to me, and uh, sure enough, ultimately, uh, they did this. The uh, the, uh, the horrible uh, savagery that would come in in this, this destruction uh, and, and the pain uh, that, uh, like a woman delivering her first child, imagine an entire nation uh, uh, moaning and, and uh, crying out on that level. Chapter 5, uh, run to and fro uh, through the streets of Jerusalem, See now and know, God speaks to Jeremiah, and seek in their open places if you can find a man, just one. And so what God is doing here now in chapter 5 is he is establishing uh, through Jeremiah the righteousness of his judgment and uh, uh, that when the judgment uh, comes, uh, that it will be righteous. And so he calls on Jeremiah, just find me one righteous person uh, in Jerusalem. And he talks about how, uh, uh, you know, how rare a righteous person had become. If, 
If there is anyone in the city who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. I'll pardon the whole city. And though they say, as the Lord lives, and this is the idea of being in a court of law and saying, as the Lord lives, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing uh, but the truth, uh, they would say these kind of things, and then uh, they would swear falsely. This is kind of uh, what uh, God was seeing. And so how rare a righteous person had uh, become uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem, and he challenges him. You just find one of them. Uh, in, in the city, and I'll turn the judgment away. And then the uh, uh, details of Jeremiah, he, he reports his search back to the Lord. Oh, Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. I mean, you, you've spanked them, and they, they won't learn their lesson. You have consumed them, but they refuse to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. That is, they wouldn't repent, and they have refused to return. So God has continued to try to uh, get them uh, to, uh, to return. And then uh, Jeremiah continues, Therefore I said, surely these uh, these are poor, they are foolish, for they have not known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God, but these have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. And so uh, I, uh, Jeremiah says, I've gone to the poor, I've gone to the powerful, and uh, wickedness permeates every single level uh, of uh, society. And so the the uh, God's law, which is intended to kind of restrain sin, uh, was not being heeded at all, and it was going to lead to even greater judgment. And therefore, verse 6, a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the deserts shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities, and everyone who goes out from there will be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many, their backslidings uh, are in, uh, increased. And uh, the Lord goes on to say, How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I fed them to the full, uh, then they committed adultery. And so God talks about um, prospering the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, you know, by the way, uh, all of us in this world, uh, we're renters. The world belongs to God. It belongs to God. Uh, we've been given dominion over it, but it belongs uh, to uh, God here. And the Lord gave them Judah, gave them the beauty of Jerusalem and so forth. He uh, gave them the resources to build their cities, to feed themselves, to have large families, to prosper in the way uh, that they did. And they used all of that wealth and all of the energy that comes from being well-fed, and it's, a, and it's a, a, a lot of the world doesn't know what it feels like to have uh, the energy of, 
of uh, not having a restricted energy because of not enough to eat. And so it was something, really something to be well fed. And so uh, what they did is they used the prosperity that brought God brought to their life uh, to then, and, and it brought energy, it brought options to their life, and they then used those options and they used their energy then to commit sin. One of the hardest things that you and I as God's people will ever one, probably the hardest place in life in which to remain spiritual is in seasons of prosperity. It was certainly the hardest for this, uh, Judah and for Israel because there's something about prosperity when God prospers us materially that we tend to get a little bit fat and sassy spiritually and we begin to think there's other options on our table other than they are, and then we use the health that God gives us, the wealth that he gives us, the energy that he gives us to explore sin and evil that we wouldn't otherwise be able to explore if we hadn't been given the health or the wealth or the food or the prosperity. And one of the great challenges is to allow God to bless us in the way that he wants to bless us and not have it cause us to be directed toward evil and toward sin. It is a constant struggle. One of the greatest dangers that occurs in our lives, all of us as Christians, we're all in Christian ministry, in Christian service. God has a call upon our lives. And when God uses us in a powerful way, a dramatic way in somebody's life or over a long uh, period of time, and he's blessing us in this way, there is this goofy kind of tendency to think that now I can begin to dabble in sin, that his anointing will continue uh, uh, upon my life, and there won't be any repercussions related to it. Even spiritual prosperity can be something that is difficult to be able to handle in a spiritual way for long periods of time. And sometimes my life is so rapidly uh, a mountaintop experience of something spiritual and maybe God has used me to do something or accomplishing something and then almost immediately I'm plunged into some kind of deep valley. But I assume that it's because I'm not able to handle long seasons of mountaintops. That's how goofy I must be. But there is that tendency and they fell prey to it, and it goes on all of the time, and a situation came to me even recently, breaks my heart, breaks my heart. I'll never tell you what it is, but it breaks my heart, being prospered and God using magnificently and so forth, and then this goofy idea in the prosperity that I'm something different, I'm something special, just like Judah did, and I can disobey God uh, willingly and openly, and he will continue to prosper me. It's a, it's a terrible self-deception that all of us uh, can fall prey to. And God said, when I fed them to the full, I filled their tables with food, and, assemb uh, and the, uh, then they committed adultery. They used this strength and health uh, for sexual sin. They assembled themselves by troops 
at the harlots' houses. This is in Jerusalem, the lines that are formed outside of the houses of prostitution and, and again, using their health and their wealth to engage in sin in this way. They're like well-fed, lusty stallions, every one of them made after his neighbor's wife, the adultery uh, that was going on. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this. And so God is laying the case for the righteousness of his judgment uh, upon uh, the nation. He said, go up on her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. So he speaks to Babylon to wipe out Judah and the cities, but he wouldn't bring a complete end to the Jewish people altogether. Take away her branches, for they are uh, not the Lord's, for the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me. It's an important word to underline in the passage, says the Lord. The Lord took it personally. It's a funny thing to realize, and important to realize. We sang, one of the last songs we sang, in fact, the last song, if my memory serves me right, about him being our father. And we're in a relationship with God. And we're all wonderfully conscious as Christians of what the relationship with him means to us. But what I think we are prone to forget very quickly is what the relationship means to him. And it means something to him. And it broke his heart in terms of how they treated him here. They have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, it is not he, neither will evil come upon us. These were the false prophets that were declaring, no, Jeremiah is all bogus, it's ridiculous, it's not going to happen. Evil isn't going to come upon us. There isn't going to be a sword or famine. None of these things are going to happen. And the prophets have become wind, and the, wor uh, and the word is not in them, and thus it shall be done to them. They will partake of the judgment. The very prophets who were saying this wasn't going to happen, God said, and there are prophets in the world today that are just full of hot air. They're just big bags of wind, and when they contradict God's word, that's exactly what they are. And so he warned against them, and therefore thus says the Lord uh, of hosts, because you, speaking to Jeremiah, you speak this word. Behold, I will make my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. So imagine here is the Judah, this great big pile of sin and idolatry and wickedness, and God said, I'm going to make your mouth and the words that I speak through you to be the fire that lights all of it uh, on, on fire to devour it, to rid the nation of it. And behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Uh, again, describing the Babylonian invasion. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. In other words, their arrows are going to bring death and great death to people. They are all almighty men, and they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat, and they shall eat up your flocks 
and your uh, herds, and they shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust uh, with the sword. And nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end to you. This is wonderful. He keeps hope alive because he knows they don't deserve it at the moment, but one day they're going to be in that Babylonian captivity and remember, yes, God has chastened us. We deserved it. His judgment was just. But he did say that he wouldn't make an end of us as a people and a nation and his promises, despite how severe his punishment was. And that's the wonderful thing for us as Christians too. Can the Lord chasten or what? Does he know how to discipline us? But when he disciplines us, even as severely as he can do that in our lives, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, the writer of Hebrews declared. But he never lets that chastening go to a place where we doubt we are still his child and still saved, and there's a future and there's a hope. It's that wonderful fine line that God uh, is able to walk in Uh, turning us back to himself. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you, and it will be that when you say, why does the Lord our God do these things to us, then you shall answer them, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, you shall serve uh, aliens in a land that is not yours. So basically what God is saying, and, and we'll see it's a recurring theme, both in Isaiah, also in Jeremiah, But here in Jeremiah, God is essentially saying to the southern kingdom of Judah, you like idols? You like those little idols a lot, don't you? You like to take all those little caked breads and put them down in front of the idols. And has it ever occurred to you when you come back the next day, that stupid little thing didn't take one bite out of it. It's as dead as dead can be. What are you doing? I gave you your homes. I gave you a nation. I gave you an exodus out of Egypt. I've given you everything that you have. And you turn away from me for idols? You like idols, do you? I will send you to the capital of idols I will, uh, and idolatry. I will send you to Babylon, and you will have idols in all directions, as many idols as you want. You'll have idols and idolatry until it comes out of your noses. I'll send you to a land so that you can see what these idols make of a people in contrast to who and what I make of a person and of a people, and it will cure you of your idolatry. And sometimes the Lord will allow a person to do that. You want that? You want that? I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you till it comes out of your ears and out of your nose and until you are sick of it and the person you've become in pursuing it. And it'll forever cure you of ever being fooled that satisfaction in life can ever be found in that place. And so he'll do it. And the beautiful thing about the children of Israel related to uh, the captivity, both with Assyria and with Babylon, is it did cure them of their idolatry. They would have lots of other problems subsequently, but never again would they fall prey uh, to 
idolatry. It did exactly as God intended it to do. Declare this in the house uh, of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me? (laughs) Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Where is the fear of the Lord today? I tell you, I think it's a disappearing thing. When's the last time you heard a sermon on the fear of the Lord? Oh, you go here, and you haven't heard one in a while. All right, well, I'll do one for you right now. But the fear uh, of God, the fear of the Lord, how important it is. And when there is this kind of sin, idolatry that they were engaged in, it always traces back to this, to this, to this, to this, to this, and then and it always comes back to an absence of a reverence, a healthy fear of God. And uh, fear does something uh, wonderful uh, in our lives. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? And uh, and then the highest motivation for, in terms of speaking about the importance of the fear of God, in terms of doing good, absolutely the highest motivation for obedience is a love for someone. That's the highest motivation I can obey God under is out of my love for him. But if a person, God is saying, will not obey out of a response of love to God for his goodness, then the fallback position is we ought to obey him just out of a fear for his power and for his authority. We do everywhere else in life. We obey the IRS because we love them. Oh, no, no, no. We obey them because we fear their authority. We fear the long arm of the law, don't we? So how do we do that? When you see a CHP on the highway and you're driving and you look down immediately at your speedometer, terrible Christian that you are, and you realize you're 12 miles over the speed limit and you bring it back down to something acceptable like between three and seven miles over the speed limit or slightly under whatever it might be. Why do we do that? Why do we, uh, you know, show that kind of reverence, that kind of respect? Because we fear to violate their authority. And how much more should we fear violating the very laws of God? And God does, uh, if, uh, if I'm not willing to fear him in this way and I don't have that, Again, the highest motivation is love, but if I fall down into this motivation of fear and I lose even that, as Judah did, uh, then I'm going to be in an awful kind of place. And he goes on at the latter half of verse 22, who have placed, speaking of God, who have, have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by perpetual degree that it cannot uh, pass beyond it. He controls the sea. This is the kind of authority he has. And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. They can't go beyond the boundaries he sent for them. This is the authority that God has. Though, uh, though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives the rain. We depend upon him 
for the rain, both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. And that's an important verse as well. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Sin always withholds uh, good from me. The Bible says that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. They are life-giving. They are liberating. It is sin that takes us into bondage. It is sin that robs us of freedom. It is sin that robs us of blessing. But somehow this thing can get twisted upside down in people's minds, and God clarifies it for them. For my people... Uh, for among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men as a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have uh, become great and grown rich. They've grown fat uh, and are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not please the, the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper and the right of the needy they do not defend. In other words, here were these men that were taking the position of a judge within the nation of Judah, and rather than judging righteously, they were using their position to make themselves, enrich themselves. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And the Lord, again, laying his case for the righteousness of his judgment against them, an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land, he said. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and uh, my people love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? And God describes this whole thing as astonishing and as uh, horrible. Prophets prophesying falsely, absolutely contrary to uh, the Word of God. At least notice the possibility of it, that this kind of thing uh, can happen. Not everyone who begins something with, thus saith the Lord, is actually speaking uh, for the Lord. But why, do, why did the prophets prophesy falsely? Because they didn't want to say anything to make people uncomfortable. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to speak what the people uh, uh, wanted to hear. The priests rule by their own power, and then the danger is, is when you have the corruption of the priests and the prophets is when the people don't recognize that, and they love what the priests and the prophets have become. And they love this false message of a message uh, of teachers teaching them that they can be comfortable in their sin uh, and that judgment won't, uh, won't come. And they love that kind of message because it didn't demand anything of them. They could just continue to engage the lusts of their flesh and, and so forth. It was just the kind of teaching uh, that people uh, wanted. It is a very, very uh, New Testament phenomenon. Paul uh, speaks about it as a danger in the last days. And I'll close with this. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he wrote to Timothy, he said, preach the word, uh, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. 
if you ever sit in a room like this that claims to represent the God of the Bible and someone comforts you in willful, deliberate sin, you are dealing with a false teacher and you need to run away from it. And this kind of thing is, I'm not going to get into it. It just frustrates me. But it's growing. It's growing. I'll talk a little bit more about it another, uh, another time perhaps. But no true spokesperson from God will ever do that. And I think it's important to realize too, here you have the prophets and the priests and when they're putting their sermons together and so forth, uh, beware. For those of you who are Bible teachers, beware if the dominant thought in your mind in the preparation of your Bible study is, what do people want to hear? What will please them? As opposed to, what does God want me to say and what do people need to hear? It isn't that you disregard people in sermon preparation, but they never must become more important than what God wants to say and what we need to hear. And if that gets flipped upside down, and it did in this time in the history uh, of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, then, you know, everything is kind of lost in terms of biblical accuracy. The most important thing is not what will please people, though I'm happy if people are pleased, but what is faithful to God's uh, message and what is important for them to hear and for me to hear, even though it might be difficult to hear sometimes. Let's stand together. We'll close tonight in prayer. Father, when we look at the southern kingdom of Judah and the people of Judah, and we see all that they were tempted to go into and all the temptations that lay before them and all the temptations that they fell prey to, we don't view them as some kind of a strange people that we can't understand. All the same temptations, as you are well aware, are before us every single day. And we thank you, Lord, for the reinforcement of holiness and of godliness and the fear of you, Lord, that are found in the pages of the book of Jeremiah, a fear that is disappearing not only in the world, but even so often within the church itself. And we pray, Lord, that you would use our time in the Word tonight to encourage us in right and strengthen us, and that you would in a time of such a moral and spiritual free-for-all that we find ourselves in, that you would keep your standard of your word high uh, in our lives, not only when we're at church, as the southern kingdom of Judah did in going to the temple, but in the privacy of our life as well, that the private part of our life would be used for the exploration of what is good and noble and virtuous and not what is evil and wicked and filled with idolatry. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.